Okay? Great. <clears throat> so, uh, let's just drop in for a minute. Again, just let the mind settle on its own. All right, and now let's also consider our motivation for being here. Motivation is considered very important, I think, in all Buddhist traditions, but perhaps especially in this style. I am going to talk about a few different things today. We're going to try to lead us up to a certain place. And part of what I'm going to do now to kind of create that container is I'm just going to invoke, whoops, let me do this here, the lineage Viduta Kalpana Jala Gambiru Dara Murti Namaha Samanta Badraya Samantas Paranati Shaina Bhavona Pibavos in the Chirunapi Shashvataha Nadachanapi and the chest Vamandaya the most to tame Omanjagi Yangi Bodrana Dusan Sangi Kogin Omani Rasa Chukongos and Tunza Bodzavi Lame Shala Sawanda Senekuki can represent Gitala Timbaborazanek on the direction of Toboy Lodu Bobanawatilda so and I'll say something more about lineage soon. But in the meantime, I think I'm going to stand because it might be hard. Do you want to come in? Yeah. I think you won't see me in the back. It's kind of an interesting space. Uh, so maybe I'll just ask, are there any... And we have our mic ready. Yeah, no worries. Um, any any questions about what we've been doing so far? Reactions? Pretty different, right? From uh, if you've, you've been used to Vipassana style, it's some ways it will eventually seem, I think, not so different, but in the beginning it may seem very different. So, anyway, yes? So uh, this morning you responded to a, a question about inside versus outside with not inside and not outside. So yes. um, does that mean oneness or both? No. Or, okay, good. I'm glad I asked then. <laughs> does not mean oneness. It also doesn't mean manyness. It doesn't mean both and it doesn't mean neither. It's a, it's a, um, an interesting simultaneous event for me because I was just introduced to this idea of awareness. Um, Lama Willa calls it Rigpa. Yeah. So anyway, I'm going to hold the questions because I have a number of questions about that. But in terms of the experience, um, it's like two things are going on at once. There's this, um, I so appreciate the questions of people that it's like, yeah, but what about this? And what in the world is going on here? Because this... Um, there's a certain not knowing here, but there's also a certain release in, it's like, just be aware. It's like, wow, this was cool in a certain way. But then there's a little bit of my mind so is that has to do something 
that is a little thrown by that. But I think it's two realities, I think. So, so, but I'm, I'm, is the idea here to just cultivate non-dual awareness, like just let go of inside and outside, even though you don't understand it? I think uh, we're going to try to understand it. Good. So it's it, overthinking, however, during... So there's something I think that's very important about, <clears throat> in general, actually, meditation practices, all of them. And this is a distinction in the Tibetan world. They use a, a compound, nyamje, which is short for nyamshak and jetop. And that means the state of absorption. You're basically in a session... And then, but in Sanskrit it would be called, so that would be samapati in Sanskrit, and then in, uh, then there's the tatprashta labda, which means the subsequent state. You're off the cushion, right? Or in this tradition, actually, you know, you may be on the cushion, but you're not really in the, you're not sort of, uh, you're adjusting, or you're, you're not really quite actually having uh, the, the if, well, let's call it the target experience. It's a little problematic to call it that, but we'll call it that. So we're on the cushion or we're off the cushion, basically. And when we're on the cushion in this style of practice in particular, theorizing, explaining, trying to figure out what's going on, and all and that is, is, is not helpful. But when we're off the cushion, and, and likewise, actually, various kinds of judgment, including even ethical judgment, while you're on the cushion... For example, a moment of anger occurs. Is anger something? In classical Buddhism, anger is a klesha, to be abandoned. Right? In this style, that's still true at a certain level. But this is also trying to go to what you might say, what is the nature of the anger? What is the essence even of the anger? And the essence of the anger is that it's not anger. That may not make sense yet. Uh, hopefully it will by the end of our time together. But in that case, right, the judgment, this is something to be abandoned, would not be, we, we don't want it, you know, if anger is coming up, some kind of klesha or negative mental state is coming up, we're not to evaluate it as good or bad, as something to be abandoned or something to be accomplished. During the session, off the cushion, all of that stuff comes right back. It's just as important or even more important, right? So our ethical judgments, our vows, if we have them, whatever that might be, that's all very important, even more important in some ways because it's a very important container for the kind of practice that one's doing on the cushion. And that can, that can be a real big point of confusion. People who get involved in non-dual styles and Zen is in included in this, can think that, oh, I'm just going to go around and be in non-dual awareness all the time. Well, sure, if you're a Buddha, like, yeah, go for it. Uh, the rest of us ordinary beings are not going to do that, because if we do, we're going to cause all kinds of problems for ourselves and other people. Right. But one other thing, the transition from on the... this I've meditated almost 40 years with my eyes closed, but I'm seeing that the transition from on the cushion to off the cushion is a lot less stark. I mean, in breakfast, even here, yes. it's not that different. And there's a certain... There's a kind of continuity. Nice about that. that. May, yeah. yeah, so yes, and that's going to be a very important theme. What is continuous across all experience, actually? That's going to be a key theme. 
What is it that is continuous across all experience? So we will get there. But we're going to get there, first of all, let me just actually set us a little more context by saying this particular tradition that I'm speaking from in my you know, imperfect way is uh, in Tibetan called Chagzok. That's what that Tibetan up there means. It means the combination of Mahamudra, which is actually a Sanskrit word. It means great seal. And Dzogchen, which is a Tibetan word that means great perfection. Historically, we don't really know much about the kind of origins of, of Dzogchen, the great perfection. But Mahamudra, or the great seal, is something that we can really trace very nicely in Indian texts, Sanskrit texts primarily. And it is, uh, uh, therefore, something that we can kind of connect with historical developments. And I think, following my friend John McCransky, I think it can be very helpful for us to bring a historical perspective to how these traditions evolve. Uh, this teacher is Tuka Urgen Rinpoche, uh, the teacher of this style that combines, there are other traditions that combine the, these two, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, in the Tibetan world, these would be known as uh, Mahamudra is most associated with what's called the Kargyu tradition. And I can't really write that down without writing over the slides, so I won't. Uh, and, in, uh, and the Dzogchen tradition is associated with what's called the Nyingma, or ancient tradition, Kargyu and Nyingma. And so this actually combines both of those lineages. And lineage is going to turn out to be an extremely important feature of this style of practice. It's really important in all of Buddhism. But one way to think about the importance of lineage is that there are things that cannot be conveyed just by words or even by symbols. So there's a kind of experiential learning that's really key, I think, across all Buddhist schools, but it's going to be especially important in these schools. And so part of the invocation of lineage that I do, which is my own, you know, one of the styles in Tibetan Buddhism is one sort of gets to tinker a little bit with certain aspects of the sort of ritual performances that set the stage for teachings and so on. And so I do some of mine in Sanskrit because, well, I, since I know Sanskrit, rather than use Tibetan translations, I go back to the original Sanskrit. Uh, and, but that part of what I'm doing here is setting that sense of lineage of connection, not just to uh, Tukur Ugyen Rinpoche, whom I met in 1994, a couple of years before he passed away, but also, to, of course, to his brothers, I mean, excuse me, to his sons, who are all brothers. And Chuki Nimurubache is the eldest son. Uh, his, he is uh, my main teacher, actually. But I've also spent a good amount of time with both Sogni Rubache and Mingyur Rubache. This picture was taken, I think, oh, maybe a year or so ago in the winter in, in, in uh, Kathmandu. And uh, unfortunately, one of the other sons, another one of the sons is also a well-known teacher, but he passed away last year. Uh, so uh, these triad of people actually represent kind of the contemporary tradition that I'm connected with. But there's also a sense of these traditions going back, 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 hence the Sanskrit, including especially, for example, the figure Nagarjuna that we'll be talking about. So the, the sense of the kind of being embedded in a lineage that is not just a lineage of text, but is a lineage of experience, is really critical, I would say, for all Buddhist traditions, but it's certainly especially important for this style. And how do we understand this style? Well, one way of thinking about different styles of practice is this idea of the 84,000 different versions of the Dharma. Has anyone ever heard that before? So... 
84, so why are there 84,000 versions of the Dharma, do you think? Permutations. What's that? Permutations. Permutations of the Dharma, but why? It was oral for hundreds of years. No, that's not why. Yes, that's a good historical explanation. It's really, because you could say the orality actually connects to, like, when you're saying something, you're saying it like I am right now, in a particular place, at a particular time. Hence the way every sutra begins, in Sanskrit, evam mayashrutam ekasman samayai. That's if I heard, this is Ananda speaking, right? The Buddha's attendant, who amazingly had this incredible memory and was present with the Buddha whenever he gave a sermon, because he was his attendant. And he says, I heard this at a particular time, in a particular place, the Buddha said such and such. So there's a kind of emphasis on context, right? And that means that, why is the, what's the emphasis on context? It's like, well, what do people need to hear? So there are 84,000 different versions of the Dharma, which really just means a whole lot as a number, right? Uh, because there are 84,000 different personality types, so people, and, and the, it's said, sort of in the Mahayana version of the Buddha, where uh, things become even more kind of miraculous and amazing, it's said that the Buddha would give a sermon, and there could be 84,000 people in the audience, and they'd all hear a different sermon. Right? So they all heard what they needed to hear, so to speak. So part of what this, is, this metaphor is telling us which is a very important metaphor as, as Buddhism develops historically, is that the Dharma is for what? Well, we can always say it's for relief, liberation, relief of suffering, right? Whether it's ours or everyone's, whatever it might be, we can always say that, right? So, this, so that means that it's a method. The Dharma is, is like a raft. Many of you have probably heard the metaphor of the raft, Right, which is also from that water snake uh, sutra or sutta, the Alagadupama Sutta, and you know, as as usual, the Buddha's you know giving a, having a, a, an engagement in this in this case because someone has con- been confused about the role of ethics actually in practice, and at a certain point, they get onto this question of well, what is the teaching for? And, you know, the, the monks are always kind of like the straight men, right? The Buddha says, well, what do you think, monks? Do you think if you built a raft and you used it to cross a river, that would be a good thing? You get across it, yes, Buddha, that, that would be great. And, and then you take the raft and you're going to have to now travel across the desert to get to the city and you're going to take the raft with you and put it on your back? And say, uh, don't think so, Buddha, no. Why would I need to do that, right? We, the raft is the teaching, and if we are clinging to the teaching, then we are carrying the raft on our back. Right? So the teaching is relative to these 84,000, really. It's relative to what individuals need in order to get them to liberation. Right? So that's a very key aspect of Buddhism. This is also very important in that concept of the sort of one Dharma concept. Uh, that Joseph Goldstein has written his book about, and that hopefully we'll be doing more about in, in the not-too-distant future. But then if we think about, like, what are styles of practice? What are ways of practicing? There are many different kinds of divisions, but one of them is an old one, 
uh, is the idea of Shraddha Anusara and, uh, and Yaya Anusara, which basically means followers of faith, those who follow just by faith, and those who follow by reason. Uh, another division that's coming from the Tibetan world is actually the Tusamtawi Luke, the Mengakombi Luke, and the Jinlapoig Luke, the, the, the way of study and reflection where you're basically trying to cultivate a, a, kind, a philosophical view, actually. So this is the way of the philosopher. And then there's the way of the meditation practitioner, who engages what's called mengak in Tibetan, or upadesha. And you heard a couple of those this morning, right? So, for example, when Sadaha says, the mind, this mind bound up in knots, if you just let go, it will be free. There is no doubt. Right? So that's a mengak. That's something that will be kind of said in the context of meditation practice to try to encourage a particular insight or to respond to a particular kind of experiential context. And then there's something called the, the, the method of blessing, jinla poiluk, which is like a direct transmission that we won't really try to engage with, that is you know, exceptional and, and not something that really can, we can make sense of in, this, in our context here. And then there's another really interesting division that we see a lot. So we can see these kind of, some, to some extent, we see these in different Buddhist cultures. But one of the divisions that really goes across all Buddhist cultures and that captures some of those divisions there is this division between scholars and practitioners. Right? The people who want to study, who like to study, who do a lot of study, and the people who, and who don't end up maybe doing very much meditation practice, and then the people who, want, who don't like to study, who want to do meditation practice, and that's what they do, and they don't do very much study. So a couple of things about that. The extremes of both of these are generally probably not good. right? There's a couple of Tibetan sayings that are, that are about this. One of them is uh, uh, That means the, the, the great meditator, said ironically, who uh, lacks any education, any knowledge of the tradition, who is unlearned, is like a handless person climbing a mountain. And then the other one is Gompa may be mountaini, Miklong Tangla Lubaja. The uh, highly educated person, the scholar who lacks any meditation practice, is like a blind person left in the middle of a desert. Right? So both of these extremes are not desirable. However, it is important for us to kind of follow what our inclinations are. And one of the real questions here, a really key question is, well, what exactly is the role of reason in a philosophy, right? A kind of thing we're going to be going through. In the Mahamudra Dzogchen tradition, the Chagzok tradition, it's said that actually, in some ways, the ideal practitioner is the cowherd, is the shepherd. You know, the nomad up in the mountains who's illiterate, uh, who has never studied anything and has no real education. Why is that person in some ways the ideal practitioner? Because they don't have a lot of theories. They don't have a lot of ideas about things. The rest of us 
And I think especially us who have been, who've been raised in Western education style, whether it's in, in the West or in Asia, if we've gone through that kind of an education, we've got a lot of ideas. We have a lot of theories about things, a lot of beliefs, and therefore it's really critical for us, I would say, even if we are very, close, very strongly drawn just to meditation practice, I don't need this theoretical stuff. It's very important for us to exam, to do at least a little bit of the theoretical stuff because it's going to help us uncover some of our assumptions that may be blocking us in our practice. Right? Otherwise, I think it can be actually, in a certain way, uh, almost a tragedy to spend many years in meditation practice not having learned any of the sort of Buddhist philosophy or the background and then maybe someday to discover a little bit and learn that, oh, wow, I held a bunch of beliefs that actually really didn't make any sense in the context of the kind of practice I was doing. So when I was talking to William Edelglass, uh, the executive director here at BCBS, he really encouraged me to try to do something philosophical with you all. So that's why I'm doing this. All right. Let's then, we're going to set some stage here. And uh, I think many of you have studied Buddhism a fair amount. Uh, have, has, have you, how, how many of you have read like academic books about Buddhism? Uh, anyone do a shout out of an academic book that they've read? Any book? All of? Oh, Analio. Okay, great. Yes, that's a, that's a lot of heavy duty reading. Of, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Pika Bodhi for sure. Stephen Batchelor, yes. Anyone else? Has anyone ever read uh, Rupert Gethin's book, The Foundations of Buddhism? All right, that's a goodie. I just wanted to point that one out. It's a good overview book from Oxford University Press, very accessible. The Dalai Lama has written books that are, that are very academic. Oh, Donald Lopez, yes, yep. Oh, I don't know that one, actually. That sounds interesting. I'll check it out. So it sounds like you've been learning that you're pretty well studied. That's great. So I'm going to kind of move on that assumption. But if I go too fast or I jump over things too much, just stop me, okay? Uh, but I think this is, a, this is maybe something you may not have heard of from any of those other books, which is a way of thinking about the sort of periods of Buddhism in South Asia. South Asia basically means all of India, right? But actually, this map isn't big enough to capture where... Well, maybe it is, because there's Afghanistan up in the top left corner. Remember where the Bamiyan Buddhas, which unfortunately the Taliban blew up? They were in Afghanistan, right? The uh, most important Sanskrit grammarian was Afghani, we believe. Panini, his name is. So while Buddhism started in this area, it eventually spreads throughout what some people call the Sanskrit cosmopolis, a place where the Sanskrit language, something like Latin in Europe, the Sanskrit language is kind of the language of the educated. And uh, so Buddhism spread very broadly in all of what we, all of this we can call South Asia, even all stretching over to Afghanistan, we can include in South Asia. So 
In that, in that region, we can think of kind of three general periods. One of them is the period, the early period, right, where we can use the term Nikair, which refers to the collections, the various collections, which were regional and based on regional languages. So the Buddha, for example, probably spoke a language called Maggi or Magadi uh, in, uh, in central uh, north India. And we believe there was a canon in that language at one time. There was a, there's a canon in Gandhari, which is up over here, heading into Pakistan. There's a, uh, a canon in really a number of different regional languages. Right. So these are the Nikayas, and these canons include various texts that are about monastic discipline, the sutras, of course, and also the Abhidharma, which we'll be talking a lot about. Then we get, starting around uh, maybe a hundred years before the start of the Common Era, we get Sanskrit starting to being used by Buddhists. So that texts that are now being written by Buddhists are also, in a sense, becoming more available to non-Buddhists. And this starts a period of real interaction and debate between Buddhist and non-Buddhist traditions, especially in philosophical contexts. And some of these debates are very formal. They're held in front of a king, and whoever wins gets the money, quite literally, for their, for their institution. And whoever loses, sometimes, uh, well, they usually, uh, they certainly didn't get the money. Sometimes they were forced to convert. There's a famous story of how Shankara, who you've maybe heard of Shankara from Advaita Vedanta, Nandul Vedanta, debated the great philosopher Dharmakirti, and he lost, and he refused to he refused to convert to Buddhism. So he jumped in the Ganges and killed himself. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's really taking debate seriously. But anyway, uh, and then finally, in the late South Asian period, we find a kind of development of interactions between these traditions, so that there's borrowing between Buddhist and non-Buddhist traditions, but also various forms of Buddhist philosophy and practice themselves become kind of intermixed. And that's a very important period for Tibetan Buddhism because it's during this period that, that the Indian Buddhism then goes to Tibetan Buddhism. And by around the 1200, 1300, 1400, actually Buddhism for various reasons has declined significantly in India, at least institutional Buddhism. And there are various reasons for this, but some of them are just the failure of these institutions some of that due to invasions and so on, but also due to economic circumstances. So these institutions declined considerably by the, 12th, by the 13th century and even the 12th century. So the terms we will find in Mahayana texts to describe uh, these periods will be the, the, in terms of what are called the vehicles or the yanas. And there is this term hinayana, which literally means lesser vehicle, and that's going to, we're, we'll explore a little bit that term. Obviously, it's a pejorative term in many ways. But one thing to remember is that when the great vehicle first comes up, it's a minority tradition. And it is being quite heavily critiqued. Not everyone was, was happy to have a kind of reformed version of Buddhism occur around the start of the Common Era. And it received quite a lot of critique. Interestingly, an important thing to note is that Non-Mahayana monks and, and uh, Nikaya Buddhist monks, bu Buddhist monks following the older traditions like Sarvastivada or Staviravada, which is what Theravada is, that those monks actually lived together in the same monasteries. So Mahayana monks did not have separate monasteries. And to this day, Tibetan Buddhist monks 
have vows, their monastic vows, are monastic vows of one of the so-called 18 monastic traditions that claim to date themselves back to the Buddha's time or shortly thereafter. So they have the same kinds of vows that Theravada monks have, actually. Right? So that's something to keep in mind. That the monastic uh, uh, vows were not, uh, uh, were not the basis for the division between Mahayana and earlier styles of Buddhism. And that, one thing that's important to know about that is a big part of what's happening in Mahayana, which is the form of Buddhism that goes to Tibet, so-called great vehicle, is that the Mahayana is reflecting new ideas, new philosophy, new motivations, and to some extent new practices. But the core practices of Buddhism remain the same. Right? And what, part of what this tells us about Buddhism that's very helpful to keep in mind is that as a religion, right, if we can see this is, if we think about the, as Buddhism as a religion, and, and religious studies scholars will certainly think of Buddhism as a religion, as something, an institutional religion that is, in a sense, enabling its members to live a certain lifestyle, to actually, if we follow the uh, sociologist Durkheim, to even inhabit a certain kind of reality that is constructed by a shared vision of what is the good life, what the purpose of life is, and so on. That that kind of, there are different ways of thinking about those types of traditions, religious traditions, that in a sense give us a sense of what is meaningful in life. One way of talking about it is called orthodoxy, okay, which is straight or the right orthodoxy, the right dogma. You have to, these are the things you have to believe. And then there's what's called orthopraxy, which is the right practice. These are the things you have to do. You can have a tradition that it has, is not orthodox, it's orthopraxic, meaning the way you stay a member of that tradition is by observing the practices. Your beliefs, actually, you can have a bunch of divergent beliefs, but still be a member of the same tradition. So often, uh, Judaism, broadly construed, is thought of as being orthopraxy, not orthodoxy. There isn't like a creed that everyone has to uh, assume in order to be Jewish. Likewise, Buddhism is best thought of as orthopraxy, not orthodoxy. There is not a creed that everyone has to, that everyone has to agree to in order to be a Buddhist. So that's really key, right? to the present day, and you would, therefore that enables a certain amount of diversity, which again may be very important because there are 84,000 different kinds of personalities and some people need to have maybe contradictory views in order for them to get, so to speak, to the next stage. And then finally in this late South Asian period we get what's called, often called the Vajrayana, the Vajra vehicle. A Vajra is a kind of scepter that dates way back in Indian uh, South Asian culture the scepter of the god Indra, the god of the gods, uh, often thought of as a diamond or indestructible scepter, and it becomes the symbol of tantric practice. So this is a form of tantric Buddhism, or this is tantric Buddhism, the Vajrayana. Okay, so, so another key issue here, of course, is the three jewels. What are the three jewels? Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, right? I think that's familiar, I think, Probably everyone knows about the three jewels, I'm hoping. Uh, so there's right, Buddha is from the, word, the root Buddha, 
It's a past participle. It literally just means awakened. But actually, that root can mean to awake or to blossom. So it has both of those senses. You're waking up out of the sleep of ignorance and you're blossoming into the Buddha qualities. Right? Hence, the Tibetan translation actually is, uh, is Sangye, which captures both of those. You're sort of eliminating something, but you're also uh, realizing or accomplishing something. And a key aspect of the way uh, the Mahayana traditions, in particular, will think about Buddhahood is that, you're, that in an ultimate sense, when we take refuge in the, in the Triple Gem, we're also, in, specifically in the Buddha, we are taking refuge in our own Buddhahood, at least in part, in the sense in which there's something about the way we are currently that is the same as a Buddha. Now, that doesn't mean you are Buddhas. That's a, very, that's a big source of confusion in this context. This is the notion of Buddha nature. And we're going to come back to that. It's going to be an important theme for us. right? But in a certain way, you could say, you could think of this as capacity, right? taking, taking refuge in the capacity for Buddhahood. But also, very importantly, that there is actually something continuous about your experience right now that is continuous with Buddha experience. Okay? That's going to be a key feature uh, of Mahayana in general, and especially this, this non-dual tradition. But then, of course, conventionally, we think, think of the Buddha as just the historical Buddha, who is just one of many, right? Everyone knows that. Does everyone know that there are past and future Buddhas? Is that a surprise? Yeah, that's a surprise? Okay. All right, so there is a past Buddha, Dipankara, and there will be a future Buddha, Maitreya. And, but they're only just, in this universe, there are, there's actually a multiverse, and there are already many other Buddhas in many other universes currently, right now. There are also possibly Buddhas, awakened beings in this universe, but not all currently, or even on this world, but they don't appear as Buddhas. So when we talk about the historical Buddha, we're talking about a Buddha who looks like a Buddha who performs like a Buddha, who engages in the deeds of a Buddha. And, you know, sometimes it gets very precise, like there are 12 specific deeds, like you have to get enlightened at Bodh Gaya, and you have to give your first sermon in Sarnath, and so on and so on. Also about the body, you have to have the body of a great being, uh, which uh, when the Buddha was born, it said that the, the sage Asita predicted that he would either be a, a kind of universal monarch, or he would become a Buddha. And he did that based upon his physical features, which included like a little bump on his head called the Nushnisha, which, which you, uh, let's see, do we here see there's a bump on the head of, the, of this icon, right? That's called the Nushnisha. I can see the top of it, but you can't actually see the top of a Buddha's Nushnisha. You know, the, one of the gods, I can't remember which one, probably Indra, like tried to see it one time and kept going up and up and it couldn't, you know, it's like, oh, what? What's going right? You have uh, wheels on your hands and feet. And there are, so there are 32 uh, major marks and 80 minor signs that characterize a, the body of a Buddha, right? So those, that would be like a being that looks like you just look at that being and go, whoa, that is something really special, right? So that kind of Buddha requires a world in which people are ready for it. So that sort of person who performs as a Buddha, what's called the emanation body of a Buddha, 
uh, is, requires circumstances. But people can be Buddha, as it is said, without doing that. It's just that you would never know. Yes? How is that concept, how would you compare that to the Theravada concept of an Arhat? So an Arhat is someone who uh, is, a Buddha is an Arhat, but an Arhat is not necessarily a Buddha. So an Arhat is someone who has uh, eliminated the causes of rebirth and is therefore free from the compulsive cycle of rebirth that is called samsara, which literally means flowing together. It's the, it's the compulsive flowing together of your mind-body constituents. That's why it's called samsara, this stuff flowing together, right? driven by karma and by klesha, or negative mental states. So an arhat has eliminated the causes that propel one in that way, and therefore is, has attained nirvana, understood as the cessation of samsara. Uh, Buddha, additionally, has the capacity to teach, to turn the wheel of dharma. That arhats can teach too, but in a sense they're teaching through, through the inspiration of the Buddha, following the path that the Buddha the historical Buddha has laid out. Uh, uh, someone who becomes a Buddha can teach, in a sense, a, a new version of the Dharma, a version of the Dharma that is what the world needs in that time, in that place. Does that make sense? So that would be the difference. The uh, notion of the marks and signs, is uh, that's also Theravada, very much Theravada, that the Buddha performs certain deeds uh, and has to perform them in order to really be a Buddha. That's also very much Theravada. And the basic life story of the Buddha gets a little embellished in the Mahayana period, but it's basically kind of, you know, pretty much the same. There's not a lot of differences, uh, in the, and certainly in the fundamental features of it. And those fundamental features also map onto four uh, pilgrimage sites, uh, right? So there's the birthplace of the Buddha in Lumini, which is in southern Nepal, and then there's uh, the enlightenment place of the Buddha, which is in Bodh Gaya in the north here. And then there is the place of the first turning of the wheel of Dharma, uh, uh, an expression we're going to examine soon, which is in Sarnath, where I spent two years. And, uh, and then there is the death place of the Buddha, Kushinagar. So those four acts of the Buddha, those are like the four main acts. That's you're going to find in the Theravada as well as in the Mahayana. And therefore, the, those pilgrimage sites are pilgrimage sites for all Buddhists. Uh, okay, the Dharma. The ultimate Dharma is, and, and, and this material is primarily coming from actually the Sanskrit Abhidharma. So this is not Mahayana per se, actually. A lot of this is really both for Mahayana and non-Mahayana. We'll come back a little bit more to this idea of the Sanskrit Abhidharma soon. The ultimate Dharma is actually, uh, so there's the distinction that's made in the Sanskrit Abhidharma, and I'm not sure if it's in the Theravada, I imagine it's probably in the Theravada Abhidharma, and the Pali Abhidhamma, uh, but it's certainly clear in the Sanskrit Abhidharma. And that is the distinction between the, the Dharma as an actual realization and the Dharma as a tradition as texts, both oral and written texts. So the, the, in a sense, the final, the actual refuge is the realization of the meaning of the Dharma. Right? Uh, but but it, it, a representation of that are the words. 
right? Whether they're written or spoken. Uh, and then finally, the Sangha is the community of practitioners, right? The, uh, the ultimate community are those who have had a direct realization of reality, otherwise known as Arias. Okay? So that direct realization of reality, or you could say truth, would mean, for example, someone who's directly realized the Four Noble Truths, or at least the first of the Four Noble Truths. That could count, at least on some accounts, that makes someone an Arya. Right? Uh, in more conventional terms, it's really any member of the Buddhist community. Very broadly, you can say it's just anyone who's taken refuge, because that's what makes you a member of the Buddhist community. It's not, remember, it's not a creed, it's not what you believe, you know, it's not uh, whether you think uh, Buddhas have bumps in their head or not. It's, uh, it's actually uh, a, a, a process of, it's like a social process in this case of saying, I'm joining this community. That's what actually makes you a Buddhist, quote unquote. Right? So we can even think of all lay people as members of the, uh, uh, of the Sangha, no problem. But it's especially going to be the monks and nuns who are paradigmatically members of the Sangha. Okay. Yes. Yes. So I think you're talking about Pracheka Buddhas, possibly. Is that what is that what some people call silent Buddha in around? So that's my question: is what is what is that? A Pracheka Buddha. Uh, strictly speaking, you can't go backwards. So if you're a Buddha, you're always a Buddha. Right? <laughs> yes. What is a Buddha? Uh, maybe we should save that for a little later. But we, okay, why not? Let's talk a little bit about it now. So we're going to explore the idea that there's a cause of suffering and the basic... The sort of fundamental goal of Buddhist practice is to eliminate suffering, right? So anyone who's completely eliminated the causes of suffering is, is called an arhat. Someone, and how do you eliminate the causes of suffering? Basically, you see what's really going on. Not just intellectually, but experientially. Because what's causing our suffering is confusion. And what relieves our confusion is seeing what's really going on. A person who has directly had that experience of what's really going on is called an Arya. Okay? They're not an Arhat yet, because they've seen what's going on, but they still have to kind of 
fully implement that, to completely uproot the causes of suffering. Okay? So now we're at a place where we've understood what's really going on, we keep practicing, and then we get to the point where we completely eliminate the causes of suffering and the things that perpetuate suffering for ourselves. But in order for us to actually teach other people, we need something more than that. And there are different opinions, but in the Mahayana context, the something more is basically the capacity to see the reality that sentient beings are living in. And they're not all living in the same reality. So a kind of metaphor you could think of is someone who's really stuck in some kind of conspiracy theory. Or somebody who has, is in psychosis even. If you just go to that person and, say, and they say, you know, I think that um, <clears throat> all clocks are actually controlling the universe. Like, look at the clock. It's like, what, how do you have a clock in here? And if you say, no, you know, that's a little crazy to think that the clock is controlling the universe. It's like, you know. If you say that to them, they just walk away or they get angry. So in order to help someone get out of that delusion, in a sense, you have to enter it. You have to understand what, uh, where they're coming from. Why are they experiencing this? What is it like to experience that? So that then you can very gradually move them out of it. And part of what that means is one has to, in a sense, have such an incredible kind of flexibility that any perspective is available to you. And you have to have a very intense motivation in order to do that, to care that much. So the intense motivation comes from great compassion. So the distinction between an arhat and a Buddha, one distinction is that arhats are certainly compassionate, but the Buddha has developed, a Buddha has, to, an arhat who is a Buddha is someone who has developed compassion to this incredibly intense degree. And it's also said that what's distinctive about a Buddha is they not just have that kind of compassion, they also have a certain kind of wisdom that enables them to, in this way, really enter the worlds of sentient beings so that they can help those sentient beings to become free of those worlds. Does that make sense? Do you know any? Do I know any Buddhas? Uh, I know people who certainly seem Buddha-like, but, you know, how would I know? I'm not a Buddha, so, you know. But, uh, uh, I mean, I know... Vaguely, Shakyamuni Buddha, in a certain kind of indirect way, uh, through his teachings uh, and the lineage. But uh, who, we, but certainly there are people who, you know. So in a way, we do know, right, the Buddha. We know that Buddha through the lineage and the teachings, and then we encounter people who we, you know, who knows. But uh, to in the Tibetan, here's a very important thing. Many people, many Tibetans. I've had the pleasure of spending a lot of time over the years with the Dalai Lama because of my work with the Mind and Life Institute primarily. And uh, he's really a very remarkable person. And he actually, I remember one time, uh, you know, not to get like, I don't know, woo-woo about it, but I remember one time I was at an event, I think it was at Emory, and he wasn't wearing, he was just wearing sandals, and he put his foot up. And if you look at this icon in the hand, you'll see there's a little like wheel in it. And because the Buddha has a Buddha, one of the marks is wheels in the hand and the feet. And he put his foot up 
and I saw the bottom of his foot, and he has like almost exactly that design on the bottom of his foot. I was like, what? Okay, say, oh, okay. So, you know, there are many Tibetans who think he's a Buddha. If you ask the Dalai Lama, are you a Buddha, he will absolutely deny it. He's just a simple monk because, for many reasons, but one of them is just that one of the sure signs in the Tibetan world that you are not spiritually accomplished is if you say you are. It's like the guarantee, it's not American, it's not like, I'm an arhat, you know. It's like, if you say that, that means for sure you are not. And that's just how it works in the Tibetan cultural context, right? So I, I will withhold judgment about the American context, but I've gotten very used to the Tibetan one. Uh, so anyway. So just a couple of Are the Aryas, are they just stream enters? Or yeah, stream enters. Okay. So all the way on up. So uh, an Arhat is also an Arya, but they're just like also an Arhat, right? So an Arya is... You can be an Arya, but not an Arhat. If you're an Arhat, you're an Arya. You can be an Arhat, but not a Buddha. But if you're a Buddha, you're an Arhat. And, and the other thing is, what about the great Mahayana teachers or um, Tibetan teachers who taught another version of Buddhism? Are they Buddhists? Uh, they, so they didn't really teach another version on their view. And we're going to get to that later. They, on their view, they did not teach... Another, I mean, yes, okay. In, in the way I've been using the word 84,000, they, they sort of made manifest versions that had not been available before. But the traditional claim is that all the teachings of the Mahayana and the Vajrayana, if we go back here for a second, right? The traditional claim is that these teachings, which historically become manifest around this period, and then these teachings, which become historically manifest around this period, were all taught by the Buddha when he was alive. That they were all taught by the Buddha. But that they were kept secret for various reasons. So that's the, that's the claim. Which is interestingly like not completely incompatible with an historical account. It's, it's totally conceivable. You know, remember, I can't remember which text it is, but... Uh, you know, there's an account of the first gathering of the Arhats when they try to decide what the Buddha said and when Ananda sort of says, well, I remember, you know. And uh, even though people, Ananda had a reputation for not being the brightest star in the sky, but actually he turned out to have this incredible memory. And so, you know, the, other, the Arhats are there gathered listening to Ananda and at the end of it, one person stands up and says, I didn't hear that and walks away. At least according to one account. I can't remember which text that's in. Uh, so I believe it's a polytext, actually. So uh, that you know, says to you something like, people heard different things. And maybe even they got different teachings that the Buddha said, hey, come here, let me tell you something. And you know, <laughs> nobody else heard it. So it's not inconceivable that that actually is the case. But certainly, historically, this is going to be when we, I'm sorry, let me go back here for a second. When we talk about these different periods, this is going to be, uh, the idea that this is all taught by the Buddha is crucial because it is, in a sense, all one dharma, right? One of the 
So some of you may have heard of the five heinous acts that lead to immediate rebirth in a lower state, right? Because have you heard about that? Killing your mother, killing your father, drawing the blood of an arahat, drawing the blood of a, a Buddha, I think it is, and then causing a schism in the community. Is as bad as killing your parents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lower rebirth. Right? So, you know, that because it was a minority community in South Asia, right? It was if it started to fragment, it was just gonna fall apart. So there was this, there was an institutional uh, reason to not have schisms. But there's also a, a, you could say, spiritual reason, right? Which is about the whole idea that the teaching is for what people need. We're not driving, we're not saying this is, you know, you should believe this because it's the absolute truth. We're saying we should, you should believe this because this is the medicine that you need. Or even don't believe it. You just listen to this because this is the medicine you need. And of course, that metaphor of the Buddha as the physician, uh, the Dharma is the medicine, and the Sangha is the nurse, very old metaphor we find dating way back. That, that's, that's the idea. And of course, you know, some medicines are good for some things and some medicines are good for other things. Okay, so of these, which do you think? So the, the sort of Mahayana tradition is going to say, I don't know about Theravada, uh, I think they may agree with this too, but what, what do you think is the, the, the key one? The most important one. No. <laughs> dharma. You really, without the Dharma, none of it happens. Right? It's, not, it's definitely not the Buddha, because if the Buddha doesn't teach the Dharma, he's just, uh, you know, the fellow with a bump on his head. And, uh, uh, right? And if you have a nice community of people, they can have great parties, but mm, what's it about? So it's the dharma that is the core of this. All right? And interestingly, especially as Mahayana develops, there is, becomes this idea that the dharma is in some sense you know, always available. Because it's not just about the words and the tradition, it's about reality. And reality is always available. Okay, uh, right, so then we have this concept of the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma. So this is going to be connected to that historical progression, but this is, so this historical progression I gave to you before is a, is a Western academic way of thinking about the progression. And then this is going to be a traditional uh, uh, way of thinking about it from the Mahayana perspective. And this idea of the three turnings is pretty much in place probably by the 4th century, of the common era, I would say. Uh, so the first turning is going to be the turning of the wheel of Dharma, which you see represented here. This is a statue uh, that is currently, I believe, in Sarnath, but I believe it's originally from Matra, of, of the Buddha in the, the mudra, the gesture that's called the, the gesture of turning the wheel of Dharma. Right? And that this metaphor of the Dharma wheel is that when the Buddha was born, he could have become an emperor the way he would have become a world-conquering emperor is he would have this kind of like, you know, close encounters of the third kind, kind of huge wheel-like thing above him that would go out in the battlefield and he wouldn't even have to fight because people would just see it and run away. It was so like massive weaponry. 
But instead of conquering the world with this, you know, this weapon, instead he conquers the world with the wheel of Dharma. Right? So that's where the metaphor of the Dharma wheel comes from. And of course the wheel is also about the chariot, which is the way in which the Aryans right, conquered, so to speak, at least mythologically speaking, conquered all of uh, the Sanskritic cosmopolis. All right? So that's the first turning. The turning of the wheel of Dharma is the Four Noble Truths, or the Noble's Four Truths. We'll talk about that soon. The second turning is called the Perfection of Wisdom. This is a collection of, of sutras in Sanskrit. So these texts are in various Prakrits, or in Pali, which is technically not a Prakrit. So a Prakrit is like Sanskrit, is kind of street Sanskrit, spoken Sanskrit, like where languages get simplified. They go from complex to simple. So just to give you an example, those of you who are from New York, and you will know what I mean when I say, I'll give you a little context. It's like noon, and I, you know, we're outside the deli, and I say, you, I say to you, jeet, and that means... Did you eat? Yes, there we go. It's amazing. I do that in Wisconsin and people go, what? Huh? Right? Jeet, right? Did you eat? Jeet. No, Jew. No, Jew? Yeah, exactly. Forget about it. Yeah, so, so that's, I'm originally from New York. Uh, so, yeah, so that is an, a good example of this kind of process uh, of simplification of languages. So that's why when you see in Prakrit languages or in Pali, abhidharma, or just the word dharma, becomes dhamma. Because you're taking a complex comp- consonant, the, you know, dharma, and you're making it simpler, going to dhamma. Okay? Nirvana becomes nibbana. Va and ba are interchangeable. So, but even nirbana would, to make it simple, you just take out the rasan and you double the consonant. Nibbana. Okay? So that's what's happening in Pali. Pali is not, we believe academically that Pali is, was not a kind of regional language, that it's a sort of hybrid language that's developed out of regional languages. Uh, but it's functionally very similar to other Prakrits that were re- regional languages like Gandhari and Magadhi, and so on. So, uh, or Magi, I guess. Uh, no, Magadhi. So that's, these, this is where Sanskrit begins. This is, there's, these texts historically appear around the, around the start of the Common Era. And then the third turning is going to be basically about Buddha nature. It's actually about more than that. But Buddha nature is a good way to think about some of the core aspects of this third turning of the Wheel of Dharma. It's called Tathagata Garbha. Okay? So we are, our, our goal is to kind of go through all of this, actually, so that we, because these non-dual traditions arise at the end of the, that Sanskritic, uh, of that syncretic period, right? Toward the end of the first millennium of the Common Era. That's when we really start to see this kind of, the Mahamudra style tradition. It's not called that, but we start to see that. There are predecessors all the way back to the 3rd and 4th century that are going to have many of the same themes, but not quite exactly. Okay? So we're going to try to go through all of that in the coming days and pick out key elements that will help us to understand like, why would non-dual awareness be such an important thing? 
Why would it make sense to say inside, outside, no, no thank you? Right? Why, why does that make sense? Yes. Uh, uh, just before you were talking about poly, it's believed, we believe, you said, um, it's kind of a convergence of various. Yeah. Right. Who's we? Oh, I'm uh, sorry. I, I thought I said academic. Scholar? Yeah, it's a academic, uh, sort of in the academy, in, in, in uh, academic scholarly context. That's the current opinion about the poly language. Thank you. And would you just define current? Oh, I, geez, I don't know how far back that goes, but probably a couple of decades, maybe, I think, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think a couple of decades. Yeah. It's not my area of expertise, so I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I work in Sanskrit primarily. I can, like, puzzle out Pali if I need to. But I work in Sanskrit and in Tibetan, yeah. primarily. We have a fundamental teacher, scholarly teaching from um, somebody who was here. Yeah. In yes. Did he mention that about uh, about the language being probably a kind of hybrid language? It's we don't. It's probably not an actual vernacular. I will double check that for you. But my. My latest understanding is that it's not an actual vernacular, meaning there was a region where this language was spoken as someone's mother tongue. I don't believe that is, that is the case. There are, it is the case with other Prakrits, most likely. Not that it really matters, I don't think. Yes? So Sanskrit is a, uh, a highly inflected language, uh, which has so uh, it, it has uh, it, it's like Latin and Greek, but it actually is more inflected and more complicated in that sense than Latin and Greek. So uh, it has seven cases. So yeah, so. So what part of what I mean, what part of the reason I'm saying that is that means that it's starting from a very complex place, and what we observe historically is somehow that languages that are very complex then over time become simplified. So a very complex language may be something that's very old, and hypothetically, uh, the Sanskrit that's used for the Vedas, which are the sacred texts that of what later is known as Hinduism, and that the Buddha was almost certainly educated in, and was in some ways reacting against that tradition. We'll say a little more about that later. Uh, those texts probably date to, to 5000 BC, roughly, and uh, possibly older, but we really don't know. And there's, uh, I don't remember, I don't know the latest research on this, I'll be frank. But they were Sanskrit texts. It's Vedic Sanskrit, so it's a very particular kind of Sanskrit, but it is Sanskrit. They were they were oral texts. They were oral texts. So they were so when and they actually had different shakas or branches, which means def, basically there were different Vedas, right? Uh, like uh, and then also there were uh, and the Vedas were focused on a ritual, a set of ritual practices that were especially about fire sacrifice, or called homa. And uh, those so there are four main Vedas. 
And they, but they, each of those Vedas also has different branches, which means basically different, different oral lineages to the point where they even use hand gestures to represent, when it traditionally passed from father to son, and they use hand gestures to represent the different intonations, which you don't have in later classical Sanskrit, right? Post-Vedic Sanskrit. So you actually have to learn very precise intonation of the Sanskrit, because otherwise, if you get the intonation wrong, it's said that Indra will come down and take his vajra and split your head in a thousand pieces. So, you know, probably motivation to... Gather all the pieces. <laughs> Good idea. Okay, so Sanskrit is... So Sanskrit becomes... Uh, Sanskrit becomes a, a lingua franca, right? A language of the elite, of the educated elite for uh, all the way over to, you know, all, really all of Afghanistan, we believe, into Central Asia, all the way over to Indonesia. So one of the main centers for a while of Buddhist Tantra was the island of Java. Uh, so the, uh, so, and Sanskrit was being used in Indonesia, uh, and you still see traces of that in even in you know contemporary Indonesian culture, and some of that's in place names. Uh, the uh, and you know the Ramayana, uh, the Sanskrit epic plays a very important role in Indonesian culture historically. So anyway, yeah, Sanskrit was this. this that's why we, there's this term that a, a scholar, an academic scholar named Shelley Pollock, uh, uh, coined called the Sanskrit cosmopolis, which is this huge region that is much bigger than contemporary India, where Sanskrit kind of spread and people were using it. So when, when Buddhism started to use Sanskrit, it became part of this kind of larger cosmopolis. It started to participate in a kind of transnational, if you like, even though there weren't nations then, but you know, a transcultural kind of phenomenon that facilitated its spread eventually to China. First, okay. So many things we could talk about. Uh, okay, uh, my friend George Dreyfus has this great uh, saying. You know, Christians love God and Buddhists love lists. <laughs> and uh, so here's some more lists for you. Uh, there's three three kinds. So when we talk about doing Buddhist trying to cultivate darshana, seeing, philosophy, but experientially, there's three kinds of wisdoms that are, are involved. There's, and this is the term in Sanskrit, pradnya, is the wisdom of learning, where you're just like literally hearing, actually. Uh, like what you know, we're doing now, I'm saying things and you're listening. And then you contemplate those things. Right? You think about them, you mull over them. Do they make sense? You maybe debate them with others. And then you get to a certain point of clear understanding. And at that point, almost like sometimes a sort of aha moment, like, oh, I get it. And then you meditate. Right? So this is going to involve language and concepts. And this does not. This is just non-conceptual experience. Right? And that's also, we find that in the Sanskrit Abhidharma, not just in other texts. All right? So that non-conceptual experience is going to be the result of the philosophical investigations. 
Right? It's, again, it's, the philosophy has a purpose. And that's going to be in the larger context of, context of the, what's called the three kinds of training. The training in ethics, the training in meditation or concentration, and the training in wisdom. So one way to think about this is that in order to have wisdom, in order to really get the right kind of experiential wisdom, one has to have uh, uh, a stable mind. So you need meditation. You need concentration, if you like. But in order to get that kind of, to cultivate that type of meditative capacity, you actually have to uh, not have a chaotic mind. So in order to not have a chaotic mind, you need to have, lead a, a certain kind of lifestyle, right? Does that, have you heard of the three trainings before? Yeah. Some? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So that's not unfamiliar, right? Need to take a break? Okay, no worries. I think we're going to break, I forget when, I actually have forgotten. 10.45, okay. Are we doing okay? Okay. So the, uh, the, the sort of paradigm here, when we think of, of, being, of doing darshana, of doing philosophy, is actually a scholar-practitioner paradigm. That's very clear from both of these, right? You are a practitioner, not just of meditation, but actually, but also of, a certain, of holding certain kinds of ethical conduct, often in, through the medium of vows, right? Whether it's a lay vow or a monastic vow. And uh, the scholar part, of course, is the learning and the contemplating. But the practice is not just the ethics, of course, but it's also the meditation, which is going to enable you to get to the wisdom of meditating, or the wisdom that comes from meditating, made of meditation. So that's where this metaphor of seeing is even clearer, right? It's like, you just, it's not just about a bunch of arguments, it's about experience. Okay, now we're going to transition into, and I, I, I had uh, Susie send you an article, a couple of articles that are both kind of engaging with these different kinds of, uh, uh, of philosophical schools. And we need to be cautious when we use that term because a lot of the time what's happening is later Buddhists are looking backwards in history and kind of attributing positions to philosophers that they didn't necessarily have, but they're trying to kind of put people in categories and make it all neat and tidy. So when we use that word school, it's a little misleading. It's not like there was, you know, a certain part of Nalanda Monastery or something where all the Majamakas, you know, this is the Majamaka school and here we have the evidence. It's not, not like that, really. It's not really an institutional thing. But there is about, there is a notion of lineage. So philosophers will very much be in lineage where they will identify, be identified in relation to certain teachers, and those teachers themselves will be identified in relation to certain teachers. So there is definitely a sense of lineage for these different styles, philosophical styles. Okay? These four schools then later become a kind of method, of a meditative method, where going through the different positions of the schools is a way of getting to the final point. In other words, you sort of rehearse, maybe sometimes very quickly, in a meditation practice, the perspectives of these different schools to lead you to, experientially, the final perspective. And that final perspective may vary a little bit depending on you know, who's talking about these different schools. 
For our purposes, that final perspective is going to be the non-dual style of Mahamudra. And we will, it'll be clear what that means in relation to these schools eventually. So, classically, the four schools, when these are uh, first articulated, one of the first authors to do, do this in a clear way was Bhavi Veka from the 5th to 6th century. I'm a little bad at the dating game sometimes, but I think that's correct, 5th to 6th century. And, uh, uh, but certainly later authors then, this kind of schema becomes very deeply embedded in Indian Buddhism, Indian Mahayana Buddhism, and then in Tibetan Buddhism. And there are many texts that are just presentations of the schools. Sometimes these texts include not just the Buddhist schools, but also non-Buddhist traditions. Uh, they are Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, Yogachara, and Madhyamaka. All right? Vaibhashika is actually from the name of a particular commentary on the Abhidharma, the Mahavipasha, which is lost to us uh, in its entirety, but we have some fragments of it. And these Vaibhashika were also identified with a particular uh, uh, um, monastic school called the Sarvastivada, those who maintain all exists. And we'll say a little more about that later. Then there's the Sautrantika, the so-called sutra followers, and they are uh, kind of revise the Vaibhashika level. And then we have the yoga practice, or mind-only school is another term, but that's a misleading term. But you'll hear that a lot. It's not a good term, but people use it. It's because of the Tibetan translation. And then the Madhyamaka, or middle way school. So we can think of these first two as the Abhidharma. And they actually come from the sort of source, the, the, the main source when Sanskrit Buddhist philosophers are doing this kind of thing, talking about the four schools, their main source is a probably third, maybe fourth century, but probably third century text by a very important scholar whose name I'll write down later, called Vasubandhu. And that's called the Treasury of Abhidharma, the Abhidharma Kosha. Okay? Who's never heard the word Abhidharma or Abhidhamma before? Anybody? Okay, so Abhidharma is one of the, uh, another list. So the, the Buddhist canon is conceptualized as having the three baskets, or three pirtaka. One of them is the discourses by the Buddha. They're called sutras. The other is the uh, uh, monastic rules, including rules for lay people. That's called the vinaya. And then the third basket is called the Abhidharma. And it's basically going to be an account of the mind-body system and indeed of the cosmos as well that has a very specific role in Buddhist practice. It's kind of quasi-canonical because it's not really the case that the Buddha taught most of those texts. But they emerge very early in the community when the community is trying to systematize the Buddha's teachings and his discourses or the sutras. Okay, So that's the Abhidharma. We'll be talking a fair bit about it uh, today and maybe tomorrow. So both of these, for our purposes, we're just going to treat this as Abhidharma so that we don't have to get into too much detail at this point. And the other thing to keep in mind is the actual historical progression of these schools. So we're going to do Abhidharma, Yogacara, Madhyamaka. This progression 
is said to be from subtle from from the coarse level to the subtle level. Okay? Quick thing to say before I do that. Quick thing to say about that. There are I, I can't remember where I've read this. I believe I heard this as well. There is a kind of opinion, a very interesting opinion, which says that if you can get it just by basic Abhidharma, in other words, if one can achieve not just uh, you know, liberation from suffering, but full-blown awakening, full-blown Buddhahood, samyak sambodhi, complete Buddhahood or awakening, bodhi, uh, if, if you can... You can do it just with Abhidharma, and that's all. If you do that, that's fine. That's the only level of philosophy you need. It's the people who are kind of pig-headed, who have to go all the way down this way. It's an interesting perspective. In other words, that you know, if you're really stuck on metaphysics, then you've got to keep going to this subtlest level of metaphysics that undoes metaphysics itself. The subtlest level of, level of philosophy. So with this, these are all... Remember the term darshana, seeing, and that other term drishti, the view, the, the philosophical theory, right? So each of these is a drishti, it's a view. The final, this, the, the central position of this view is that you have to abandon all views. So you go through this kind of so-called metaphysics about what's reality, what's the real, you know, how do we know, and so on and so forth. If if you're too stubborn, you have to go all the way to the end. That's an interesting perspective, actually. But I think one of the real challenges in general in all of this is also a kind of intellectual honesty, like really, in a sense admitting what we actually believe and being willing to examine it. And that's the challenge, really, one of the big challenges to this kind of path is, is you have to be really honest with yourself so that you could be studying this, but you could say, well, you know what, I'm really, that's where I really am at, just as an example. So historically, this is the sequence. These arise first, the Sanskrit text that we have, these are all in Sanskrit. The Sanskrit text that we have of this kind of Abhidharma, the Abhidharma Kosha, the treasure of Abhidharma by Vasubandhu, is actually pretty late. It's like, again, maybe 3rd century. But there are texts, especially the, the kind of original text, the Mahavibhasha, that's probably dating back to maybe even the 1st century before the Common Era. But it certainly is you know, much earlier than the 3rd century. Okay? So this is, you know, a lot of the Abhidharma that we have now is for, it has been gone through a long series of formulation. Uh, and so this is historically pretty early stuff, but the version that is used is from the 3rd century. Uh, what comes next actually is this. And it's really helpful to think of this historically even though it's often taught in this sequence, it's actually, we're going to do it in this sequence, the historical sequence, because this Madhyamaka is really a response to this. And then this comes next. And this is also a response to Madhyamaka in many ways. So by doing it historically, we'll see things that we wouldn't see otherwise. And then, once we get to 
here, we're going to circle back. Because what happens in that final period, right, that final period of Buddhism in South Asia, is the combination, that part of the reason I call it syncretic Buddhism, you know, being syncretic, putting things together, is it's a combination of these two. Okay. Uh, and I, I think we can... I'm realizing maybe we, this is too ambitious to uh, get you all. How, how your, how's your energy? Okay. Great. Then we're going to do it. All right. So what's the sort of... So the Buddha is a young man in, you know, somewhere in like Nepal probably and he's a privileged person in education and so on and he's living in a particular kind of environment uh, that has lots of cultural expectations around who he's, what he's supposed to do and also cultural norms, you know, kind of the rules of how you live your life and also philosophies that are out there and spiritual practices. So one of the biggest kind of Spiritual practices, of course, the one we already mentioned is the Vedas, you know, practicing the fire sacrifice. And the idea of the Vedas, I actually don't have a picture of, I, I, I usually have a picture of Homa, I don't have one here, maybe I can share it to you later. But, you know, the idea of the sacrifice, which people are still doing now, and have orally transmitted those texts till now, uh, is that the Homa pit which is very precisely laid out geometrically. You can do it all just with a string. It's amazing how you can do all the geometry of the pit with the string. And there are different kinds of pits for different purposes. Is The idea is that this is in some sense a kind of microcosm of the universe. And it's also a portal to the gods. It's a way of communicating with the gods. So the manipulation of the, of the fire sacrifice is at once a manipulation of the universe and a way of getting the gods to do stuff, actually compelling them to do things. If you do the fire sacrifice correctly, the gods don't have a choice. Okay? So this system eventually, and that's, so that's a very old practice, probably around thousands of years before the Buddha was born, right? when he was Prince Siddhartha. And then there's, what starts to happen is people begin to ask, well, how does this work? Like, why is it working this way? And even, do we really need a sacrifice? So one kind of speculation is that this, what's happening here is that there's something kind of underlying the universe, a sort of web, you might say, that interconnects everything, and what we're manipulating actually is that. Because that's the fundamental nature of reality. So to really get to what we want, right, to reach our highest goal, what we need to do is understand that. Whatever it is that's underlying the sacrifice, a kind of web of reality, so to speak. So this moves then from a spiritual practice that is about ritual activity, or, or what's called a karma yoga, okay, ritual activity, to something that's about insight, or awareness, or wisdom, jnana yoga. Okay? 
It's seeing the nature of what's really going on that's going to get us our highest goal. So that's not just a Buddhist idea. There were many other traditions that start to emerge at this time that are um, all connected to the appendix of the Vedas called the Upanishads. Okay? So there are a series of texts that begin to appear around this period and that continue to be produced for probably maybe as much as a thousand years that are uh, under this general rubric of the Upanishad. And many of them are about like trying to figure out what's going on in the sacrifice and moving toward this direction of, well, it's something deeper. right? It's something that the way things really are, that's what we need to understand. We don't need ritual activity. We can take the ritual and bring it inside of our own minds. That's where it, all the stuff needs to happen. Okay, So in the context of that type of movement, that's how the Buddha is emerging. He had other teachers, right? We historically... We traditionally are told that he had, he had other teachers. And one of, their, one of the kind of general problematic, if you like, of this period is that the general goals of the Vedic sacrifice, which were things like power, you know, territory, uh, uh, influence. Yes? Quick question. Yeah. Forgive my ignorance. Are we talking about human sacrifice here? No, no human sacrifice. Okay, but... Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So uh, the, uh, there were uh, animal sacrifice, and in some Hindu traditions, derivative of Hindu traditions, you will still find occasionally Hindu, uh, animal sacrifice. Uh, but most of the time, it's not involving animal sacrifice, and certainly these days, and even probably historically. So you burn precious substances like you know, mustard seeds or what have you. Have, there's various kinds of materials that are used some of them represent certain types of things, and uh, those materials are used with uh, the, the primary kind of agent is butter. So you use uh, melted butter or ghee, as, uh, and you have these ritual implements, that a kind of spoon-like device and a kind of a little ladle type thing, but you then pour the butter in while you're reciting mantras, uh, very ancient mantras in Sanskrit, and you are then also offering into the fire uh, various types of substances. Okay? Uh, no human sacrifice. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked. You never know. Yeah, you never know. You're correct. Yes? Um, in, we're in uh, uh, Ladakh, and uh, we're staying with the family, Tepa and the family, and the uh, young man in the household would go around the house early in the morning with uh, butter and a wick. Yes. He was doing, so that's just, that's called a, a butter lamp or marme. And uh, he may have been reciting some mantras or something like that, but that would not per se be connected to fire sacrifice. However, fire sacrifice is done in tantric Buddhism by Tibetans, and it, and it resembles in many ways the Vedic sacrifice. Uh, and I think even some of the mantras are the same, actually. So and I've seen and participated in that, and it is really like a Vedic sacrifice. So it's. So you've been doing it for the sake of the household. Hard to say. Yeah. Hard to say. You know, he's probably reciting something, and using the candle maybe as a kind of representation of the what he's reciting, perhaps. So. The you know the Vedas were about like power and especially like getting reborn in heaven. 
But around this same time then, that kind of goal starts to be questioned. Those goals, power, money, heaven. And instead, it starts to become this problem of, well, actually, you know, the real fundamental problem is that we're not, we're dissatisfied. We're experiencing dukkha. And we're experiencing dukkha in this kind of compulsive state where we're just conditioned and stuck in a world of suffering. And moreover, because if there was a multi-life perspective, that it doesn't end when you die. It like just keeps going. So much of Upanishadic philosophy starts to think, well, not how do we get to heaven, just like how do we get out of this whole situation? Like how do we stop being dissatisfied? Okay? So that's the fundamental problem, this kind of dissatisfaction. dissatisfaction. And that is, uh, the term there is the dukkha in Sanskrit, or dukkha in, in Pali, right? Which I like the, I very much like the kind of etymology that's given by a much later author, Stiramati, which he says, ka, it's sort of a fanciful etymology, but it's still cool. It's like ka means an axle, and duch, this prefix means like badly. So bad axles, like meaning it doesn't have to be like dramatic. It can just be a little irritating. Like, you know, you know just things aren't going that way. There's something not quite right. right. We'll talk more about dukkha later, but you can just be dissatisfied. What does it mean exactly in that time? In that time... It would mean, for example, that uh, you don't get what you want. You keep getting what you don't want. And when you get something you want, you lose it. Yes. So, so just think about that. Let's say I want, you know, I'm a farmer. I want to have a good crop. And then there's a bad season, so now I don't have a good crop, and maybe I don't have enough food even, right? So I didn't get what I wanted. And then, you know, uh, what I do get instead is at the same time there's a, fa- there's a plague, so not only do I not get what I want, which is a good crop, I get it sick. And then I go to my place where my grain is stored, and it's all filled with bugs, so I had the nice grain, and now I've lost that. So I, I didn't get what I wanted. I did get what I didn't wanted. And the thing that I wanted that I had, I lost. So that's a classic example of dukkha. But another really simple definition is encountering that which you do not want to meet again. which hopefully doesn't mean a person, but sometimes it might. Like. Okay? So that's dukkha. It doesn't have to be dramatic. There's also the, the, the classic, in Buddhist world, the classic dukkha of, uh, of humans, the fourfold suffering of humans is birth, old age, sickness, and death. Right? That's another one. It's also the suffering of suffering, the obvious suffering of just like it hurts mentally and physically. It doesn't have to be just physical. Mental and physical pain, the suffering of change, uh, where the good stuff actually doesn't last, or the good stuff, if you have too much of it, becomes bad stuff, 
like maybe you like ice cream, so okay, we're going to give you ice cream every meal for a month. I think you won't like ice cream by the end of that. And then, and then the subtlest form of suffering is the suffering of being a conditioned being. The all-pervasive suffering of conditioned existence. Okay? So that's another like list. There are, they, Buddhists love lists. Uh, yes? Conditioned. Conditioned means, is the term Sanskrita in Sanskrit. And it means, uh, in this context, it means causally conditioned. So uh, it's something that is about, it's the product of a causal process and you're, that you're stuck in, in this context. It's really, we're talking about suffering, we're talking about being stuck in a causal process. Related to dependent origination. Yes. Yeah. The, so the, the links, the 12 links of dependent origination are, is an example of a, of a process of causal conditioning. Causes mental and mental and physical. You have mental conditioning too. Do you think in terms of the phrase optional suffering versus inevitable suffering? Uh, inevitable suffering is optional. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. There is a there is a kind of thing definitely where you can Add mental suffering on top of physical pain. Definitely. So that's certainly a place where, I don't know if it's fair to say that the mental suffering is optional because someone who's heavily habituated to reacting a certain way, it's not really optional for them at that point. And, what's that? Yes, correct. That's right. It's a conditioned reaction to the pain. Exactly. But there will even be the claim that you can get past the pain part. So that the idea that the pain is inevitable, especially in later Buddhism, is going to be questioned. Okay? Yeah, the second arrow is, yes, that's the classic example. What is this? Salata Sutta. Right? So, you know, someone gets shot with an an ordinary person gets shot with an arrow, and then they go, oh, why did that hurt so much? When is it going to stop? You know, please let me make it stop. I don't know what to do. All of the catastrophizing is what it's called in clinical context. That's the second arrow. Whereas the noble person doesn't shoot a second arrow at themselves. Yes? This is really a great question. I'm not so sure. I'm going to give you an example. Well, I'm going to give you a clinical example. Well, let me just let me just. Yeah. I, I'm not saying okay. you can't do that, but let me just get to my question. Yeah. So maybe I, I'm pushing that too hard a little bit. I guess I am. But um, pain is it's unpleasant or it hurts. Suffering is get me out of here. I can't stand this. Uh, let's get rid of pain. Let's avoid it. But the problem I have with it, and that works very well in clinical. But the problem I have is the first noble truth is there is suffering. So it's like suffering is inevitable. It sounds like. So the question yeah. is, what is that? Is that the second noble truth is? And the third truth is? 
is a cessation, so that means it's not inevitable. Because there wouldn't be a cessation if it were inevitable. Is there is there is but there is there suffering because of our genetic endowment that we're programmed to go toward pleasure and avoid pain? Yes, that that's certainly going to be a big part of what we're going to talk about. It doesn't. So this is a very important and delicate issue. Let me give you a concrete clinical example, which is very interesting. It's an extreme case. So uh, someone that is a a friend, and to some extent, someone I've kind of mentored a little bit over the years is named Eric Garland. He's at the University of Utah. He's a mindfulness researcher. He's developed a program that I can't remember the acronym. More. More. Thank you. Oh. Do you remember what it stands for? Uh, mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness-oriented recovery. Yeah, something like that. Yes, very good. So you're familiar with it, it sounds like, a little bit. Yeah, so this, this is a program that was really developed to deal with and has been very successful to deal with people who had op- opioid use disorder. And those people have opioid use disorder almost always because they have chronic pain. And he has taught people a version of mindfulness that involves a lot of what's called... Uh, 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 you know, a kind of reevaluation of experience. And um, that, in some cases, he has a handful of people who, after they've been doing this practice for some time, I don't remember how long, you know, so he's looked at several hundred people, but out of that, I don't know how many, dozen or two dozen, have reported that when they did the practice of, instead of kind of catastrophizing their physical pain, feeling physical pain and catastrophizing it, and did it, used this kind of style of mindfulness, that they, uh, the pain turned into bliss. You're saying that uniformly of his population? No, no, it's, very, it's a relatively small percentage of those people who, now that doesn't mean that that's, a, that's an extreme case. We don't have any idea what's going on there. But what that does, that is a very concrete case of like someone saying, I'm in pain, and then saying, I feel good. Yes? The natural challenge is, I'm just the same way, not saying that's my experience, but that, you know, that is the idea that it is, can be either a very painful experience that you grasp onto and try to avoid, or it can be a blissful experience, and it can be the same physical sensation. Yes, so I think it is definitely possible that the way we approach our physical pain can make it feel... Can, can, in a sense, make it pain. So, and there are definitely borderline experiences that, like, if you look at it one way, uh, it, it feels like, it, this is called cognitive reappraisal. That's a big part of Eric's approach. Isn't it, isn't it that newborns don't feel pain the way there's a point in time where we, we suffer pain where newborns do not feel pain? I think they know they, well, it, yes. this is that's, the... That's a myth. Yeah, that is a myth. Okay. That, that... <laughs> That is a myth, but it's an, it, it, it is an, the idea that what newborns don't have, at least according to the way we think about things you know, these days scientifically, is they don't have a whole bunch of cultural apparatus around how they should consider their pain. So in that sense, you know, what do whatever we mean by pain is like that's... Yeah, like in a way, like the like the cowherd. Yes, you had a question in the back, and then we should yeah, move on. I was, I was yeah. Just going to mention that many people are saying that the meditation on pain 
Yes, he does. Yeah, he has done, I think, a whole like video on pain, if I remember. Yes. Mingyu Rinpoche, one of the three lamas I showed at the beginning. But there, I know you want to move on, but I think this is really important. When I say pain's inevitable, there's emotional pain. So the three causes of dukkha that you mentioned, those don't have to be dukkha. They could, like, if you're disappointed because you got what you didn't want, that's pain. If you don't yeah. fight it, that's pain. That's unpleasant vedana, right? So I... So pain is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea here, this is, going to, this is maybe one of the differences between early Buddhism and Mahayana, actually, is that early Buddhism is going to sort of suggest to us that pain is inevitable. And Mahayana is pretty much saying that that's not true. Not pretty much. It's explicitly saying it's not true. However, that does not mean that we should just naively think that we can make our pain go away, our physical pain go away. So I don't want to at all suggest that to people. But I... You're not including emotional pain? All of it can go away. None of it is inevitable, according to Mahayana. It is not inevitable. But these guys never called someone up for a date and got turned down. Has that never happened to them? I don't know. The Buddha was said to be like, you know, quite a... Anyway, <laughs> maybe nobody turned him down, I guess. I think not in the early going. Yeah. <laughs> yes? He said that in Chiyo, pain, physically, emotionally, and psychologically, is a perceptual experience. The science is telling us about that now. Yes. So you can have intensity association with the physical, the way our nerves work, you can have a physical intensity, but the interpretation of it as pain is happening. Correct. So I'll tell you about some other research we've done, which is that there is a there uh, a guy named Tor Wager developed uh, using a it's called machine learning techniques with uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging fMRI uh, a kind of distinction between two different pain networks. One of them is uh, is the uh, what's called nociceptive network, so that's just like the raw pain signal, and the other is the sensory independent interpretation of pain, the SIPS signal. And uh, what we found with advanced meditators, I mean, at the time we didn't have that uh, methodology available to us, but a later graduate student looked at some of the data, and it seemed consistent with this distinction. Basically, uh, long-term meditators just don't really do the SIPs thing. They get the nociceptive pain signal. Now, whether that means it's pain to them is a very interesting question. Like, Technically, nociception is a signal influence. That's right. We actually have pain receptors. We have various forms of nociception that we... Exactly. Pressure, sensitivity, tactile. Exactly. So does that mean if you don't have the SIPs, is it not pain? However, the... the Practitioners do report like it's painful. So there may be a lot more to it. There probably is a lot more to it than what just that distinction. But it is very interesting that there, you know, you basically can, uh, you know, part of one of the experimental paradigms is where we gave people very, at the Center for Healthy Minds, like we put this device on that created very high intense heat. And uh, if they were, Long term, if they were not long term practitioners, they're just sort of ordinary people, 
the, we didn't have that distinction. We just were measuring the pain network overall. The, uh, they would activate their pain network as if they were in pain when they got a signal that said pain is coming. And they would activate that even if it didn't come. Sometimes we just didn't turn it on. And then once they got the pain, which would reach a certain level of activation in that pain, overall pain matrix, then when it went off, they would like keep representing pain. Their brains would keep representing the pain for, for quite a while. The, the, the long-term practitioners, like, okay, here's you know level of activation. Here they get the signal, nothing happens. Pain activate, you know, they get the, the actual heat. Then, you know, they show activation in that matrix. But then they come back down very quickly. So clearly there's something going on around pain. Definitely the interpretive, the second arrow part, like you don't have to anticipate it and you don't have to hold on to it. That part you can definitely train yourself to not be, you know, like freaking out about pain, catastrophizing pain. Uh, The question of whether the whole experience could be transformed is a very interesting and complicated question. It's actually part of the real difficulty there is even defining what exactly is pain, even physical pain. Like, what exactly is that? That is both philosophically and scientifically not a simple question. So, having said all that, uh, we're now out of time. But that was fun, I guess. So we'll do this in the afternoon. Uh, do we need a break in the middle of these longer sessions, maybe? Break. Yeah, like a five. Well, we're going to do a break now, and then we're going to reconvene in the Dharma Hall. Yeah, let's do a stretch break in the middle next time. We'll do like a five-minute, and people can... Yeah. Okay. So I'll see you in the Dharma Hall in uh, 15 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.